Hi everyone, you're listening to Beyond the Benchmark with Mo Zafzal, the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. So this is actually a penultimate podcast for 2021. So as we head into Christmas, unfortunately, COVID is accelerating its way through London at the moment, and we're kind of keeping our fingers crossed that everything um, dies away very quickly as we go into 2022. But no doubt. Um, this will be um, something will certainly be in the mind's eye for, for a few more weeks yet. Uh, so this week we have Chris Senyak. Um, Chris, welcome. Thank you. Uh, so Chris Senyak, um, I've been known for a long time, um, who's at uh, Wolf. Uh, and previously, Chris was at uh, ISI. And in fact, that's that's where we first met. Uh, so Chris, maybe introduce yourself, maybe introduce Wolf. I, I, I think uh, Quite a few people probably don't know who Wolf are, so it'd be great if you could introduce the firm and and also, um, you know, what you've been up to over the last uh, few years. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm the chief investment strategist of Wolf Research, where I've worked for the last 10 years. Uh, I lead our views on the market, sectors, industries, positioning, and also work with our other fundamental analysts in thinking about stock selection and themes within industries and sectors. Uh, our work is published regularly and we're quoted in the Wall Street Journal Barons and uh, I appear on CNBC as well. Um, before joining Wolf, I, as Mose uh, alluded to, I was at ISI for four years um, in, a, in a similar but a little bit narrower role uh, where I did quantitative work in accounting and tax policy. Um, as well as some special situations work, which was more stock idea generative. I joined ISI um, as Bear Stearns was blowing up and imploding back in 2008 in the financial crisis. I started at Bear uh, in 2000, first as an investment banker in the M&A group, and then switched into research. Uh, Prior to business school at NYU, where I received my MBA in finance, I worked as an accountant at Arthur Anderson uh, which became a defunct entity as part of the Enron crisis in, the, in one of the last cycles. Um, and then I grew up in Ohio, uh, spent my first 25 years there. I live in New York uh, now with my wife and two teenage sons. Um, I'd say in terms of Wolf Research, it may be a firm you haven't or have heard of. Um, we are a boutique independent investment uh, research firm. Uh, we don't have an investment banking arm. We just produce high quality research and sell it to institutional investors and also RIAs. The firm was founded as Bear Stearns blew up by a gentleman named Ed Wolf, who was our founding partner and managing partner of the business. He was a top ranked transportation analyst covering rails, FedEx, UPS, and those types of companies while at Bear Stearns. And that's where I met Ed. Uh, back in 2003, I think it was. Uh, he formed Wolf. Uh, we had always kept in contact. And then he's expanded Wolf into a nice little research uh, enterprise uh, over the years. I think I was number uh, 25 uh, employee, and now we have uh, over 250 folks across the world. We cover, uh, in fact, we have 29 analysts covering over 600 stocks now across uh, all gig sectors in the S&P 500 and in the most recent institutional investor poll, we weighted uh, on a weighted average basis, we weighted five uh, among firms ahead of some of the bigger bulge bracket uh, banks. Uh, Our goal is to grow and be independent and produce high quality content and uh, and research 
and we're actively looking to add top talent uh, over the coming years. And and that's that's Wolf, and that's and that's and that's Chris Senek. Great, thanks, Chris. I knew the accounting side, but uh, didn't know you were from Ohio. There we go. That's something new I learned as well uh, today. You always, you always learn something. So. Uh, <laughs> Exactly. So, um, Chris, obviously, you're the sort of main market strategist at, uh, at Wolf. Um, maybe you can outline your thoughts as we head into 2022. Obviously, we had strong economic growth this year, strong earnings growth next year. You know, how do you see the 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 U.S. stock market playing out into into 2022? And what do you think going to be the key drivers uh, to that view uh, over the next um, six to 12 months rather than the three months? Yeah, so we've entitled 2022 the year of the yield curve. And we think the shape of the yield curve is going to drive a lot of thematic trades and sector trades during the course of the year. And we think that 2022 is going to play out in two, possibly three phases. Um, the first phase, which will start in January, hopefully once you know COVID cases have, are starting to fall across the major developed countries, will be when the transitory part of inflation lessens and supply chains become more englued. So supply chain pressures ease, inflation expectations as a result come down a bit, and in that environment, we think that value stocks will outperform growth because the yield curve will steepen. And said differently, what we think will happen, given that now the market's pricing in three Fed rate hikes, that those rate hikes might fall to two um, or perhaps even one, uh, because obviously, as everyone knows, the short end of the curve is, is most sensitive to Fed expectations. So that steeper yield curve that we see occurring and in the first half of the year should lead to financials outperforming uh, supply chain beneficiaries. We've been thinking a lot about who benefits uh, as those transitory elements have come, come down um, and, and some other areas of market. And I think the growth stocks that have done so well, take a little bit of a breather. And I think the price action we've seen over the last few weeks may be the start you know, of those signs. Um, in the next phase, what we call kind of phase two, you know, the supply chain issues have lessened. The major indicators of supply chain problems have flattened out. So whether you look at port data or whether you look at air freight uh, rate data or, or what have you, there's, there's many of those that we follow. Those kind of bottom out and kind of renormalize. And then I think investors come to the conclusion that inflation is here to stay at least relative to its 15 or 20 year trend and inflation for things such as wages and rents and housing will be elevated and that won't be so transitory. And that's when inflation settles out probably three to 4%. In that environment, I think the market, and this probably starts in the summer and into the back half of the year, the market takes the view that the Fed will probably have to be a little more aggressive again because inflation isn't you know falling, right? It's kind of those things where when inflation expectations are falling, no one knows where they're going to settle out, so they just assume they're going to get better and better. Uh, and in that environment, the yield curve flattens again because the short end rises. I think people go back into the secular growers because they also think the economy is probably going to slow a bit. Maybe there's been some double ordering with respect to, you know, autos and chips and other stuff, and um, and people want to own, you know, the the tech and and secular growers across the market yet again. And then the third phase um, would be if the market thought we're going to go into recession. I think recession odds next year are 15%. That would be if we saw the yield curve starting to flatten or even invert. 
not not our base case. I don't think we'll get to that phase next year, but something that we're closely watching. In terms of the, um, you know, one of the challenges for the market, or certainly we've seen it in the last couple of months, is the concentration, uh, you know, of the S and P five hundred in some of those kind of top stocks, you know, Apple, Microsoft just represents such a huge chunk of the index. And, and even Tesla, you know, is probably causing a lot of consternation amongst the fund management community at the moment. Um, you know, how do you think think about that? Do you think there's a risk there that, um, you know, I've always described it to, to um, you know, my colleagues and, and, and to our clients uh, that Apple kind of sucks the air out of everyone else, uh, the oxygen out of everyone else because it's just so big. You know, Apple is like a $3 trillion or close to $3 trillion. The entire Russell 2000 is $3, $3 trillion. Um, you know, how do you think about that and, you know, uh, um, and how do you think that kind of plays out? I think what we'll see is a similar pattern we saw last year. You know, for the first half of the year, value worked over growth. And then the back half of the year, people just chased momentum and stocks that were working because many active managers were trailing the benchmarks and were trying to find ways to improve performance. In fact, through in the towel. And I agree with you, Mose. Tesla is the one stock that's caused all the consternation. I mean, Microsoft's the biggest contributor to the return for the S&P in 2021, but Tesla's the one that's caused the most pain because most managers don't own enough of it, right? Um, and, 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 it's, and it's big weight there. But I think the focus is going to change to industrial part of the economy, beneficiaries of supply chains coming down. The reopening trade will be alive and well again. And I think these other stocks, you know, the question with Apple always is, is that a supply chain beneficiary? Is it a reopening stock? You know, it's kind of in the middle and, and it does take the oxygen out of other names. But the market, I think one of the key risks next year for the market, I think will be the higher rates. Like we don't think rates will really do a whole heck of a lot on the long end. Uh, treasuries, 10-year treasuries, kind of in this trading range of 150 to two. Um and if we're wrong and rates shoot above two and get more to where they should be on a fundamental basis, these long duration stocks, I think, will get um, will be a big pain trade as 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 they rate because real rates have been the biggest driver of stock multiples. Um, in, in our base case for next year, is the S and P gives you a nine to ten percent return that puts the S and P around five thousand multiples are flat. But the biggest risk to our call is that multiples, you know, derate back down to where they were before, even in the face of fairly strong earnings growth. So I, I'd rather own financials, Mose. I, I, I understand the, the, the thinking, but the stocks, except for Apple's anomaly, but the stocks, the payments names, um, you see it with software now, they're acting very kind of punkish. I wonder if investors are, are looking forward to, you know, spring and summer and saying at that point, central bank balance sheets really aren't going to be growing much. And do I really want to own the beneficiaries of liquidity or do I want to own something else? Let's talk about maybe a little bit about the Federal Reserve. Obviously, the market reaction yesterday and today is actually kind of interesting. Yesterday is a bit flat, but you know, generally the market reaction was, was fairly positive. And as you said earlier, the yield curve actually steepened a bit. Uh, how do you think did the market react as as, as you would have expected, um, or uh, or are there some some big surprises there? No, I think it was I think it was well telegraphed, and I think most people are mindset now that the Fed's out of the picture for the time being. Right, it, data has to come in and and see how how that plays out, and if Omicron ends up being a lot worse in the U.S. than 
what folks anticipate, then that could even push out, you know, the rate hike. So to me now it's all about the watching the, you know, WIRP function in Bloomberg and, and rate hikes, right? That we know mm-hmm. when QE is going to end. And then it's about, is it three, is it two, is it one, is it four rate hikes for next year? Um, six rate hikes over the next two years. I don't think that's happening. I really don't think that's happening. That to me seems too much. I think the economy will slow mm-hmm. down well before they get to, you know, doing that, that, that much. But I think you have a lot of cross currents now, Mose. You've got year end, you've got exhaustion, you've got managers underperforming, kind of throwing in the towel a bit, resetting for next year. We've got a lot of inbound questions about, well, do you think the market will push higher? And, and probably you do get a little bit of a Santa Claus rally, but I don't think it'll be anything too dramatic. And people, you know, look the next year, but the Fed stuff I think was largely uh, priced in. And that's why I think, the, you know, to our point, I think the next thing the market's going to look for is, is the supply chain improving? If so, inflation expectations fall a bit and, and this yield curve really starts driving the trade we see early in the year. Mm, absolutely. As you said, it's the year of the yield curve. Um, in terms of then uh, taking it down a level, how does that, um, how does it look in terms of your kind of overweight and underweights um, across, um, you know, as we move into next year, where you're currently positioned and where you think you might change that as, as time goes on, where you describe yeah, so we're, we're most We're most underweight to defensive. So, you know, staples and telcos, in, in healthcare. Um, and then overweights is we're doing a little bit of a barbell. And I think a lot of investors have been doing this where, you know, we're modestly overweight tech just because I think tech is going to show the largest earnings growth for the market. And then we want owned financials and, you know, energy materials. And then we're kind of underweight discretionary staples and, you know, all the more healthcare, more defensive stuff. So it's a, it's like a sick and equal weight industrial. So it's kind of a cyclical biased um, thinking about what could do well in the Yorker, but not, not taking a strong view on tech. You know, I think tech is kind of like if we were running at a stock level, we'd be equal weight Tesla and focus on something else, right. That we could figure out, you know, like, and not, and not, you know, we hug the benchmark on Tesla and then try to find stocks that we can, we can kind of do 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 more work on in, in industries mm-hmm. uh, uh, where do you think it might change as the course so if the yield curve starts to steepen up any changes you would you, you think you might make i think we get more overweight tech i think that what we'd be looking for is flipping tech and, and financials so getting more overweight tech and, and comp services and taking down financials and 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 at the margin right but to me that's the toggle the toggle is tech versus financials and and and, right. and and wouldn't be I don't think we'll get to the point most where we want to get so defensive and, and own, you know, when the really defensive areas of the market. I, I think we might tweak up healthcare a bit too. But a, a value bias within you know those sectors. The, the interesting thing is, and certainly the discussion that we have, you know, is also large cap tech now the big defensive. You know, do you buy Apple, you know, or, or Microsoft, uh, like you would have bought, I don't know, Heinz or uh, or Walmart or one of the staple companies as part of your portfolio. Yeah, and I think it's about your time horizon. You know, we have it, our view over the, our long term view for the markets, looking out in the next three to five years is kind of secular, secular stagflation. So we think inflation is going to be elevated above where it's been before because of some structural issues. If you look at the U.S. labor market, you have more job openings than, than you do unemployed folks, right? There's going to be upward pressure on wages, and I think that continues for a while. I think there's a labor mismatch in the market that had persisted before COVID hit, and now it's even more pronounced. 
And I think some of the things like rents and, and home ownership and housing prices will be here to stay to say nothing of healthcare costs rising as well. Um, as you know, we find more and more ways to, to pay for all this. I mean, the, so, you know, those are, those are themes. So if we think about the three to five year view, we do have to be mindful that, you know, some of these valuations are at the upper end of the range, but when I think about where I want to be over the long run, I still go back to the secular growers because there are areas that aren't terribly, you know, that expensive relative to what people are thinking. So, um, cyclical trade would play financials are still cheap, but, um, you know, we're not abandoning those, those secular growth stocks. I think they just take a pause in the first half of the year. Um, so what's your thought about earnings? I think you alluded to earlier that earnings growth, um, you expect to, to kind of be nine, 10 percent in line with the market move with multiple fairly flat uh, over the period. What do you think about earnings growth? And, you know, one of the challenges certainly, um, you know, I have is certainly in my mind is we have such a whopping Q4 earnings, you know, Q4 21 earnings bar. You know, if you look at nominal GDP is literally off the charts. If you, if, and, you know, you then look at say this time next year in 2022, that base effect starts to become a much, much harder hurdle to overcome. Um, so how do you think about earnings, you know, generally, um, you know, over the course of the year, because it feels like it's probably okay for the first six months of the year, but the bar gets higher at the end of the year. Yeah, I think that's right. I think so. As we think about the progression of earnings, you know, we have them growing nine, nine to 11% in line with consensus. There's nothing too exciting there. We correlate, you know, that with GDP top-down estimates and the biggest driver of it is all going to be revenue growth. We're not baking in any margin expansion for the market. So we're holding margins constant, you know, buybacks were, were a little bit increasing just based on what companies have been saying. And that gets you to, you know, that kind of market return. The right. back half indeed does get more difficult. And I think at the same time, the back half of the year, we could see the economy slow a bit, right? Because the untapped savings get spent, you know, economy renormalizes and naturally will slow off a of high base. And at the same time, you, you start to get these higher bar of estimates. So that's why I think when we get into later in the year, next year, people probably go back to the secular growth stocks and ones in particular that can meet and more importantly, beat, you know, numbers and not want to be in names where, you know, the, the commodity prices or some big margin story. I can't, you know, the top 100 stocks in the S&P 500 drive about 75% of the earnings, right? Mm-hmm. And when I look at the composition of those top 100 stocks, it's really hard for me to make a case that Google or Microsoft or Tesla's or whatever margins are going to be down for the year, right? And so when you roll that up, even though there's some sectors like an industrials and pockets of consumer that are going to see margin compression because of higher wage costs or higher input costs, the overall market itself, the S&P, given the weight that tech and comm services has, just I don't think is going to see it. Um, I think if anything, those where we could be wrong is if we get some margin upside. That sounds crazy, but that's to me, you know, I see more upside earnings next year than I do downside. Um, if if indeed you know revenues remain a little bit higher than we're you know forecasting, and a lot of that, given the margins of these tech companies, drops straight to the bottom line. 
Yeah, that's a very good point. I, I certainly would agree with that. That would be a bit of a non-consensus call. I think most people I speak to, are, and including ourselves, we, 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 you know, we think the margins are actually going to go down a bit, and and it's all about the revenue growth. Um, that, yeah, that, that, I think the surprise could be margins could take ground. Where, where we underestimated in 2021 was the margin expansion. I mean, it's, right. it's, that's been the key. Multiples for the market have been flat in 2021. It's all been driven by margin expansion. And if you look yeah. at the tech yeah. names. Among others, they've seen five, six, ten per, percentage points of margin expansion. It's incredible. Mm. Uh, hard to see that that can, continues, but who knows? <laughs> may no, may well do. May well do. Yeah, may well do. Um, so, so one of the other things we've been thinking about when it comes to margins is that you know, typically at this point of the cycle, you know, companies are coming out, they start turning attention to capex. Uh, you know, do you, do do you see that? Um, obviously, with with the work that you do quantitatively, and then obviously doing a more deeper dive on on um, on balance sheets and, and earning statements. Um, are there any kind of capex you know expectations coming up um, as we would normally expect that this time of the cycle? Yeah, capex I think is going to continue to grow strong. Certainly on the resi side, housing is going to remain a strong. And we're quite bullish on U.S. housing. You know, there's no inventory. Um, we're nowhere near peak starts. And, um, you know, credit is pretty loose at this point in time. Not like we saw during the housing crisis, but still pretty mm. loose enough. Mm. On, on, the, on the other side of the, the, the non-resi side, you're starting to see it uh, pick up, which is, which is natural. People are adding plants. And frankly, some of this stuff is due to Amazon and other things. The other big long-term, the two other big long-term themes is more onshore. And so one of our themes is, deglobalization, right? Companies are going to have learned from COVID that they just need product closer to where they are, rather maybe they used to produce in Asia and they sell the U.S. and now they're, maybe the U.S. are going to have more production in Mexico or Canada or wherever else and, and, and diversify a little bit and, and even have stuff in the U.S., right? You've seen semiconductor companies that are building new plants in Wisconsin and, and Texas and, and Arizona. So that's a big that's a big trend. So I think that is one of the bullish indicators in the next two or three years on CapEx. And then the other thing is to build, uh, not to build back, but the infrastructure plan. Um, a lot of that spending won't kick in until 2023 in 2024, but that gives you a nice longer term tailwind uh, for, you know, construction spending roads, bridges and the like. And, um, and so I, we're, we're quite constructive on uh, the CapEx cycle from both resi and non-resi over the next uh, few years. And uh, with uh, long-term rates still very, very low, um, very uh, reasonably cheap to, uh, to do as well as, you know, um, I guess, uh, Earnings and balance sheet strength and uh, continue to uh, to to improve yeah. and to allow that uh, as well. Um, yeah, because well, one of the themes we've been thinking about actually with respect to the to to you know reshoring, call it, call it reshoring, or um, uh, you know um, the, <laughs> there's a big shortage of labour already in the US, and you're just going to pile on more of some of this on top. Um, you know, our thought was very much around kind of automation and robotics and those sort of areas mm -hmm. where, you, you know, um, where you're probably going to see a lot more investment going in as as um, as um, as those shortages and maybe wage inflation continue. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. That you know, there seems to be no laying down with respect to wage inflation, um, mm. and and it's going to take you know a while for automation and other stuff to take place in certain areas. We're kind of caught off guard 
In terms of then um, thinking about the U.S. dollar investor in the U.S., do you think there is a case to be made for them to start investing abroad? You know, given well, you the dollar being very strong. No, I know it's funny, isn't it? I mean, uh, we think the dollar will be modestly strong. U.S. dollar modestly stronger next year. It seems like the Fed is okay. being more aggressive at targeting inflation than the ECB. The ECB stuff out today was, you know, I thought a little bit more dovish, and and they seem to be wanting to take their time. But the the biggest theme that I you know I look at this chart every day, just scratching my head, is if you look at the U.S. to EM, right? So whether you look at a U.S. MSCI index to EM, or whether you just look at the S and P to EM, it's just such a dichotomy. And you know, emerging markets are down this year, and something we haven't really talked about. But I think that. There's got to be a catch-up trade, and I get it. There's not the same composition of companies in EM as there are in the U.S., right? But it just seems like for for investors that are patient, emerging markets relative to developed ones is are, are just compelling, um, if if nothing else, and, and on a price performance basis, or even on a on a on a, on a valuation basis. Um, and and our our thinking was, and we're not pounding the table yet on emerging markets are thinking originally before Omicron came was that they would be the place to be next year because you'd have the virus under control as vaccinations rose and, and perhaps Delta or other things had kind of burned out a bit. And China was going to go a little bit more in an easing cycle relative to what they had done over the last 12 to 15 months. Now, China, it appears, is going on a, a modest easing cycle. Maybe they'll uh, dial that up a bit over the coming quarters. But COVID, I think, is still got to see how it plays out with, you know, emerging markets and in particular, you know, Omicron. Um, but after, you know, but but looking beyond that, I, I think it is compelling relative to developed markets. I mean, the reality is, um, you know, the S&P has done extraordinarily well, apart because of the companies that are in it and, and the innovation that those companies have. But I don't think that explains all of it. Mm. No, absolutely. Um, so last couple of questions, uh, Chris, for you. Um, one of them, um, I guess, is an uh, interesting one, is just any kind of non-consensus ideas or thoughts that you have. Um, you know, I've always known you to, to, to be, you know, to have a non-consensus side to your equation. Maybe the emerging markets was a non-consensus trade, but anything other than that. You, it's hard you know, to put on a trade. Yeah, it's hard to put on a trade when, you know, the emerging markets are down 4% or 5% and the S&P's up 28, right? <laughs> That's hard to version trade. <laughs> Um, we do like so so over the near term we do like US small caps so that's Russell. Um, in right. terms of industries, um, a couple a couple things that are I think are contrarian defense stocks. So um, one of our analysts initiated yesterday on Huntington Ingalls HII, and you know there's a na- long term Navy uh, tailwind coming right. Um, I think geopolitical risks are being vastly underestimated. And, you know, while people always worry about U.S. defense spending being cut, the reality is um, I think that they, that, you know, if you, if you think about tensions with China, you know, the argument is that the U.S., you know, needs to continue to spend and can't, that can't really be an area where they do spend. So, and those stocks throw off a lot of free cash flow. These things yield 5 to 7% free cash flow yields. Um, they buy back their stock and no one cares about them because they're not fancy. And, you know, I don't say they're defensive, but you know, it's not the Google's in other words. So that's one contrarian pick. And then the other one, which 
Um, admittedly, we're we're over we're, we're sorry underweight on now, but I think it play out better is is traditional telcos. You know the the Verizon's, AT and T's of the world um, are probably if you ask about what's the most hated stocks in the market, I think telecom services is in the top three. Biotech, I think, is also up there. I'm not willing to go all in on biotech yet because a lot of these companies are so early stage. I think the IPO market has taken companies even earlier stage public. Um, but telecom services could be a, a place to look at as the year goes on. Um, I, in fact, own a little bit of a little bit of that personally. They have nice dividend yields. But defense stocks could be a nice place to, to look where people have overlooked a bit. We're seeing also folks get interested in healthcare again. Um, people have been involved in managed care, but people looking at some of the pharma stocks that have maybe lagged, I think that could be another area of non-consensus you know, opportunity that isn't terribly crowded. I do like to have a contrarian bet within the portfolio um, because those tend to do tend to work over time. And emerging markets, you know, I mentioned emerging markets too, but emerging markets, I don't think you have to get in right now. And, and we need to see kind of how COVID plays out there. In terms of um, the second one, uh, unusual question I have is what is the biggest pushback you get? You know, I'd say not just recently, but maybe over the course of your last, three or four years at Wolf. What are the, what are things you remember most we felt, you know, that you needed to push back most on? The, the one, the biggest one was our view that long-term interest rates are going to stay low for very long, right? Everyone, you remember every year we enter the year and people think rates are going higher and they never go higher. Yeah. So we've had a lot of push, our view for a couple of years now has been that rates aren't going to move higher. And that continues to be our view because we think the Fed needs to keep nominal rates low and by extension, real rates negative to inflate the way out of the record high debt level, much like they did after World War II in the 40s and early 50s. Um, and then the other one is, you know, the there are called the own, you know, kind of secular growth stocks. You know, we we've gone in and out of value, you know, more tactically, but. Um, every year people come in wanting to own value for the year. And, you know, some portfolio manager said to me the other day that, you know, if I could just enter the year and for the last nine years, just been overweight growth stocks and I could have just closed my eyes and let them run out, I would have been, I would have done pretty well. Um, and so, but, but the rate one is the biggest pushback and, you know, everyone thinks that rates now, even, even now more so right with the fed, ending their QE program that, that rates just have to move higher. In fact, we don't think they will. Well, it's been certainly challenging for um, macro hedge funds in particular that have, you know, seen inflation rate at sort of 6% and then looked at or yeah. higher uh, and looked at, you know, bond yields, you know, one and a yeah. half on 10 yeah. year, you know, they're probably looking, hang on a second, am I, am I in a world that, <laughs> in a, in a world that, uh, or not in the real world, am I in an imaginary world? Yeah, I know, I know. Well, that's a bit frustrating. It's early, you know, we've been, we've been pounding the drum on inflation for over a year now. And in the spring, we just thought we had this awesome call. We saw we were modeling inflation. We saw it picking up. The market didn't care. No one cared. And then we got some really big inflation prints in March and April and the market cared for three days and then, you know, moved on or whatever. So, <laughs> Um, you know, it really, uh, really, I think gives you a sense for the market that we're in. Mm. So I can't let an interview finish without, uh, you know, discussion around cryptocurrencies and kind of what's going on in that space. I, I know you recently had your macro conference. You had a few people there, any kind of choice nuggets 
that you could share with us uh, around uh, kind of cryptos and your own view? <laughs> yeah, so crypto follows inflation break-even rates, right? So I think it's, you know, a new hedge for inflation and what we call the new gold, right? Gold is a little bit more difficult to own and, and, and crypto is more for the younger generation, not me, so I'm a middle-aged guy, but it's sounding kind of old, but younger folks, it's, you know, buying gold's like your dad's thing, right? It's like if you're <laughs> under under forty, you buy. Oh, you know, I said old granddad's thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You buy a granddad thing. That's what I think of it as. You know, my, my gold stacked all over the places, whatever. And and, um, and and crypto is the new gold, but it's followed inflation expectations very closely. Um, what I'm looking for is it as a payment mechanism, right? So now it's it's sort of a non-US dollar store value type metric. There's a fixed, obviously, supply on, on Bitcoin in particular. And to me, the, the breakthrough would be if you can start using it as a medium of exchange. You know, um, And so I've been a Bitcoin skeptic. Um, I'm not in the camp that it's worth zero. I've just been skeptical of it and I don't have to value it. I like to value things being a bottom-up accounting focused numbers guy. I like to put numbers around something and it's, it's very, you can value it on maybe a technical basis. Right. But it's not something I can value much. And just arguably you can't value gold either. Um, and it's really supply and demand, but I think part of it is also most a symptom of the giddiness in the market. It's followed, you know, if you do a chart of crypto versus call option volumes, it follows it very closely. So I think part of the, part of it is there's some fluff, in the price of it, but I'm becoming more and more a believer that it does have a, a place in the world from an asset allocation point of view. And frankly, there is some tail risk to the US dollar in the very long run if we keep running massive deficits and printing money that you could serve as a store of value if you get a calamity event or collapse in dollar or something else. But I think it's a, a function of inflation, stay at home, retail exuberance, but it does have, I think, a, a place in, in, in the long run. Hmm. I guess it's one to get to, once it gets institu- institutionalized like gold, it probably yeah. will no longer be interesting to the young people anymore. <laughs> no, I'll move on to something else. And there's all kinds of spinoffs <laughs> from that too. So Yeah, no, absolutely. I know what I don't uh, well, we've been doing I'm doing reading over the Christmas holidays on the metaverse because that's yeah. something that I can't visualize. You know, like my kids have been playing video games now, teenagers, one senior in high school, um, and, and virtual worlds and stuff, and they earn skins, and you can pay for, you can use crypto to pay for things in the metaverse, but I just don't know how, and you can buy real estate, you know, in the metaverse, but I just don't see myself big in the metaverse. But maybe <laughs> so, but obviously Facebook, Facebook has kind of validated that, and so I think that's one of these big secular themes that, you know, we're going to learn more about and, and something that piques my interest. So that's how I'm spending my, uh, my holidays and my extra time reading. Yeah. So, um, so again, I, um, in the interest of research, I kind of full disclosure in the interest of research at home, we acquired an Oculus to start, um, to start, uh, figuring, fi- figuring out what the metaverse is all about. And so far I have to say it's, um, it's been a pleasant surprise relative to my expectations. Uh, yeah. I was expecting, uh, I was expecting a lot, you know, 
worse, I have to say. Um, and uh, you know, maybe reading too much around, you know, people feeling sick when they play for too long and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Although, admittedly, I only played for half an hour, so <laughs> I can't say too much. But, but, um, but, uh, yeah, that's going to be my my Christmas research. Is going to be um, uh, putting my Oculus headset on and uh, wandering around the, the metaverse to kind of figure out what this is all about. Yeah. Um, but indeed, I mean, it's interesting. Interesting, you know, uh, you know, Nike bought this kind of um, metaverse yeah. um, company just just the other day, you know. So, you know, there's serious money, you know, going behind it, um, and um, yeah, you know, uh, it, it's difficult to, I guess, like cryptocurrencies, it's difficult to say that this is just, you know, a passing fad, it's going to disappear. Uh, you know, uh, I can't. <laughs> we know when things gone too far when when um, metaverse real estate gets more than normal real estate. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we've probably gone past the real world when that, when that happens, but you just don't know. But it, they, I'm, I'm just waiting for that to happen, you know. But uh, anyway, we'll uh, we'll watch well, that. Can't, you know, if you can't afford a if you can't afford a place in real London, you can buy it in the metaverse for cheaper, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There we go. I can have my 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 London penthouse or my New York penthouse. <laughs> Great. Well, Chris, it was a real pleasure as always to chat to you. Thank you very much uh, for your time. Uh, I wish you and everybody at Wolf um, a wonderful holiday. And um, we look forward to catching up in uh, 2022. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate being on the uh, webcast podcast. And uh, happy holidays to you, your firm, and everyone else. And um, if we can be of any help at Wolf to you all, let us know. So that was uh, Chris Senyak from Wolf Research, um, a great guy and uh, someone who's been uh, following the markets as, as we heard for a very long time and uh, you know really thoughtful and uh, deep research as well. So uh, with that, um, thank you very much for listening in and we'll speak to you next time.